Our text today takes us to Matthew chapter 18. And in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus deals with one of the most complex, uh, most important, most easily applicable. I won't have to spend any introduction time saying, hey, today's message is going to apply to your life. As soon as you hear the topic, you'll know immediately this is going to apply to everybody. We all have human relationships. It's all going to apply. And, and yet, one of the most easily misunderstood and difficult and emotional and heavy topics that there is. When, when people uh, come for counsel to different ministers and, and counselors, this is one of the topics that's going to come up over and over. But even if you're not uh, going and, and, and getting help for it, you're dealing with it. We're all dealing with it. And the topic is, Jesus' topic in Matthew 18, forgiving another Christian when they hurt you. Forgiving another Christian. Notice, I didn't say Jesus is going to talk about what to do when people who don't claim to be followers of Jesus Christ hurt you. He has a lot to say about that topic, but not in Matthew 18. He's specifically talking about what do you do when someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ Sins against you. What is it like to forgive them? Now, now that fact alone, the fact that Jesus is going to talk about what happens when Christians sin against each other, the fact that Jesus sort of assumes that Christians are going are to sin against each other, that blows some categories. It shouldn't, but that blows some categories for some people. One of my favorite lines from Eugene Peterson, who has many great lines, but uh, uh, he, probably the understated humor of it is, all, is one of my favorites. When he wrote his introductions to the various books in the message, when he did the introduction of 1 Corinthians, he has one of my favorite quotes, when people become Christians, they don't at the same moment become nice. (laughs) This always comes as something of a surprise. And it always does, doesn't it? I mean, should that really shock us? Should that surprise us? When people say, I was deeply wounded, I was hurt. And you know what? It's by people who claim to be Christian. It's no laughing matter. I mean, right, we know people who, like, they've turned their back on God and turned their back on the church because of what somebody did who claimed to be a Christian and the way they treated them. Some of you may be here today, and it's been a long time since you've been in church, and that's part of your story. This is very difficult for you because you're saying, listen, these are people who claim to know Jesus who did that. Now, I'm not excusing sin, but I, 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 Eugene Peterson nails it. It's always something as a shock. Should it shock us? I'm not excusing sin, but to say, I mean, let's just step back. By definition, what is a Christian? By definition, you have a sinner. By definition, you not only have a sinner, you have someone who has freely admitted that they are so helplessly and hopelessly unrighteous that they would never have any, they would never have enough righteousness to get into heaven, so they throw themselves upon the mercy of God and they beg for mercy to be rescued in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's your starting point. You've got people that are so broken and messed up, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, we had to be complete, we were wrecks. We, we even sing songs like that. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So all these wretches get together. Should we be shocked that Christians can hurt one another? Should that shock us? Like, think about your starting point. You, you don't have people who are saying, oh yeah, we can get it together, we can do this relationally. You got people who are saying, I'm hopeless. I'm a wretch, right? Isn't that a little bit like, can you imagine, like being indignant? What are you so mad about? (sighs) I went to that hospital over there, and it was like full of sick people. It was gross. Ew. Wouldn't you say, wait, 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 what'd you just say? Yeah, yeah, I went to a hospital, and it was so full of sick people. You'd be like, but but it was a hospital. I'm sorry. I am going to find a hospital where there's no sickness, You'd be like, ah, uh, I'm not, I'm not excusing it, but really, like, really, there's a, there's, a, there might be a sinner up here among the righteous. Oh, clutch my pearls! How will I ever? I, I just, like, it's the shock, I guess, that I'm shocked by. And yet, and yet, Jesus knows that 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 is. So, so this is not going to be an exhaustive teaching on forgiveness. People have written entire books on Matthew 18 and on other teachings. But here's what I thought we could do today. Let's try to do this. Let's look at what forgiveness is not. If you want kind of an outline, what forgiveness is not, what forgiveness is, and then we'll close with an illustration uh, that it is absolutely vital for you. Getting this right, getting forgiveness right, both receiving and giving forgiveness is absolutely vital. It is oxygen when you're a thousand feet underwater. Okay, it, you, 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 
um, I guess at that point, you'll, you need oxygen, but the pressure would probably kill you. The, the point is, it's absolutely essential. Uh, let's get to it. And let's start, let's, let's attack this with where Peter starts. People have questions when it comes to forgiveness. There is already, even when I say forgive other Christians, for some of you, those trigger a lot of painful things. And you're going, oh, I don't know, your guard's up, you've got, you've got questions. So I just want you to know, you're not alone. Even in the middle of Jesus' context about forgiveness, when he was teaching on forgiveness, even Peter had a question. Peter stops and interrupts him, and he wants to know. So let's start with, let's start with, with, with okay, you say, all right. So, so you don't like it when I say a church is a hospital, because you, you might argue, and honestly, I would grant you this point. You'd say, yeah, but your analogy fails. People don't need to stay sick forever. Like, they should grow in maturity, right? And I'd say that's fair. So what's the limits to forgiveness? Where, where, and that's what Peter wants to know. What are the hard edges to this thing? So verse 21. Let's do Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Jesus has been teaching on forgiveness, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? In other words, how many times do I have to do this whole forgiveness thing when my Christian brothers or sisters uh, 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 sin against me? Now, this, this question didn't come out of the blue. Remember the context. Where are they? Where are they? They have begun, if you've been here the last few weeks, you know this, they have begun that fateful final road trip to Jerusalem. That's why the issue has come up. Any of you who've ever been on a road trip know forgiveness comes up a lot. Because sinning comes up a lot, right? And I always wonder if Peter is being like metaphorical about the brother or literal. Because you know Andrew's there. He's like, how many times do I gotta forgive my brother? And Andrew's like, what? And I just, like, even Jesus on a road trip has two brothers going, not touching, not touching, not touching. Like, this is great. How many times, Lord? I, how many times? But it also comes up in the context. Jesus has just, it's not, it's not just the road trip. Jesus has just done some teaching about what it's going to be like in his kingdom community. That it is really important that, uh, that, that there needs to be forgiveness when Christians hurt one another. You don't, he, he just, a few verses ago, he just told a little story. He's like, you don't let a brother or sister just run off and say, well, too bad. Tough luck. They're in sin. I'm going to wash my hands of them. He says, no, you go after them like a lost sheep. You don't just say, well, that's all right. I got 100 total. I still got 99 safe. Oh, well, too bad for that sheep. You go after them. He says, it, you, you don't just, it, it is shocking. It is a little shocking. How many Christians, have you seen this? They will just, want, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And, and once that bridge is burnt, you're dead to me. Like even, in, in, a, in a community, like across a, a small town, you go, nope, they just burn that bridge and move on. That is, Jesus is saying, no. No, that is not an option to just say, well, that's it. Dead to me forever. Allow myself to feel that hate and that bitterness because that, that bridge is, or like, you remember the old playground? Remember this from the playground when you get so mad? I'm just going to take my ball and go home. What happens when you never outgrow that emotionally and the only way you know to deal with hurt is, I'm gonna take my ball and go home. Jesus is saying, no, it's not gonna be like that in my kingdom. And so he gives what is this practical way. It's so practical. It's, you can put this into place. And he starts with Matthew 18. Many of you know this. How many of you know Jesus' is like, like forgiveness pattern? Have you heard this? If your brother, look at verse 15. Some of you, this will be very familiar. If your brother sins against you, this is the context for Peter's question. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. How many of you, uh, a little bit, you don't have to show hands, but just give me a little nod if you're familiar with this teaching of Jesus, right? You go to him alone, and if he listens, great. Like, when? That's great. Problem solved. If he doesn't, you remember this? You go back with what? You take two to three witnesses with you, right? Then if you still don't, you, and the whole community of faith come, right? And then eventually you treat him. You, you know this? To me, the headline of all this cannot be missed, Many people fast forward to Matthew 18 sort of protocols for how to restore someone and how to, how, how to, how to enact this reconciliation and forgiveness, but, um, but they miss the headline. It, first of all, if your brother, again, he's not talking about, Matthew 18 doesn't work for like, like if somebody who doesn't care anything about the community of faith, they don't care anything about Jesus. If, if they're not saved, then that's not it. This is your brother, the who, but notice the what. If your brother sins against you, that to me is very important because of what's not there. He doesn't say, if you and your brother got sideways over what? A difference of opinion. Yeah, but who sinned? Well, it wasn't really a sin. I'm just mad. 
well, then you're just going to have to be mad or get over it, but there's no forgiveness to issue because you weren't sinned against. Is everybody see what I'm saying? You, you, if your brother, Jesus did not say, here's what to do if your brother annoys you. Kids, you've never been annoyed by your brother, have you? Okay, yeah. But every time he annoys you, is it necessarily sin? You're like, yeah, every time. All right, all right, let's ask adults. <laughs> no, just because someone is annoying doesn't necessarily mean that they're sinning against you. If, if Jesus says you can't go to Matthew 18 because somebody has bad hygiene or because <laughs> uh, somebody doesn't have the right etiquette. Does everybody see why this is important? A helpful, a good practice. If you and another Christian get sideways, this would be a really good practice for you. Stop and ask yourself, have I been sinned against? And then name it. What specific command or commands of the Lord Jesus Christ did this brother or sister commit against? What sin, what did they disobey that was commanded by Christ and you got hurt because of their sinful disobedience? When you put it like that, you'd be amazed at how many people would stop and go, well, I don't. I don't know that what they did was sin. I'm like, well, then, then we're out of the category here of Matthew 18. We're dealing with something different. It could be a personality type. It could be they didn't mean it. You shouldn't take it personal, whatever. But, but it, okay, if it's not a sin. Uh, th- th- um, okay, uh, if you are angry at your kid's coach because your kid's not getting enough playing time, you can be mad as a hornet, but your coach did not sin against you. You might be right. And you to, you to one state, Uncle Rico, if they'd have put you in, right, that's great. Good for you. you. You may be a genius. You may know how to coach better. But the coach didn't sin. Does that make sense? Let's apply this to politics. If a school board or a city council that's trying to govern a place, if they make a decision or vote or go a direction that you disagree with, you might be right. You, that, that may be unwise, and you've got the wise plan, but they didn't necessarily sin against you. You can apply this and go on and on. So, so your family may really upset you, but did they sin against you? It's worth asking that. And why you name that? Why do you have to name that specific command that they broke in your mind? Get it straight. Because you've got to go and tell him his fault. And it says you, you do it alone. Now, 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 you may say, no, in all of your examples, let's just say, you're like, no, it was sin. Here are the commands of Christ they broke. Well, now that's different. Then you do this. You go and you start privately. What most of us do in, when it comes to Matthew 18 is this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell literally everyone. Build a coalition around you so that you are so armed with public opinion, but that by the time you go and sit down with your brother, you've got an army of people who think just like, you, just like I do, and I got the social media receipts to prove it, right? That is a very different way to approach, isn't it? Jesus says, hey, let, let's go alone. You know why you might want to go alone? Because you may not have the full story. And Jesus is trying to save you some embarrassment. How many times has it happened to you? It's happened to me. Where you sit down with somebody on Matthew in 18, 15, and you're about to lay out all this stuff, and you realize things were just a little more complicated than you thought when you got more information. So he says, why not, why not start with alone? But let's say you do meet alone, and let's say you, you have enough of the narrative that you're right. Jesus says so often that you are one difficult conversation away from this if he listens to you. By the way, in this passage, go and, and sometime do a Bible study and, and count how many times the word listens is used. The whole passage is about listening. You're just trying to gain an audience. You just want to be heard. They don't have to particularly do this great thing. They just have to acknowledge you're right. And if they're really saved, if they've been touched by the gospel, you've been touched by the gospel, and they sinned against you, how many Christians do you know? Really, realistically, how many do you know that that first one wouldn't end it? How many of you, they don't want to be wrong with you. They don't want to be sideways with you. They want to be right, and you want to be right with them. And if they came and said, hey, here is this sin. I can name the command you broke. And they said, you're right. I'm so-. What would they do? I'm sorry. Let's get this right. And if he listens to you, he says, you've gained a brother. And how many of you know what it feels like to get sideways with some Christian when there is reconciliation? It's almost like the family gained the brother back. Isn't it good? Isn't it so beautiful and good? It almost feels like you got a brother. Because you know what? The family's back together. So good. And some of you are one tough conversation away from that being the reality. But it doesn't always work that way. Jesus is not, Jesus is not naive. He said, you know, sometimes they won't listen. Well, what then? Do you just give up? Well, I tried. Lost sheep. You're on your own. Verse 17. No, if he refuses to, oh, sorry, verse 16. I skipped one. But don't skip this step. <laughs> but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, what's this? This harkens back to Deuteronomy, the law in Moses. Every 
uh, matter can be established by uh, two or three witnesses. And, and, and why does Jesus say this? So practical. Because Jesus knows you may have blind spots. The two or three witnesses are not like, are not like armor in your spiritual battle against this person. They're not weapons. They're to help you protect those blind spots. They can help you what? Establish the matter. The two or three witnesses who say, no, you're not alone. You're not crazy. No, this is a thing. We need, to, we need to deal with it, right? It gives weight to what you're saying, not in a punitive or angry way, but it's just people who can say, no, this does need to be heard by the brother or the sister. And can you imagine? You've got now people, many times, it, the, step one will do it, but if not, step two will certainly do it. On the off chance, and now we're getting rarer and rarer, verse 17, he refuses to listen to them. Tell it to the church. In other words, you, you, you heighten it. Now the community of faith is involved. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? It means that if, if a person has refused, just that unrepentant heart where they say, I, yes, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, but no, I refuse to acknowledge that I have in any way culpable for this sin. And you get two or three witnesses saying, hey, this should end it. We got two or three witnesses they can establish. No. And then you got yet a third who says, the whole church is now saying, they say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, but I'm completely hard-hearted and unrepentant. What Jesus is saying is, then you've got the evidence that they are not, in fact, born again. And they have the profession. They say they are born again. In that case, having gone through that progression, you have to trust the evidence and not what they say. You just have to assume they've not had a heart that's been touched by the gospel. They say they have, but they're in fact like a Gentile or a tax collector. Jesus treat those Gentiles or tax collectors. He loved them. He leaned into those spaces, but he didn't for a minute think that they were already saved. In fact, he thought they were not saved yet, so what did he do? He preached the good news of the gospel to them, hoping that they would be saved, that they would believe on Jesus and turn and be saved. And so you treat this person in your mind, you go, well then, then I've got to go with the evidence. They're, they're not, I've gone through this progression, and at that point, we are going to preach and we're going to pray that they're saved before it is eternally too late. And then Jesus references something he said to Peter back in Matthew 16 and now applies to all the disciples. And he basically says, look, you guys have the good news of the gospel to share. And the good news of the gospel that Jesus saves sinners can break every chain. So what are you waiting for? Go and preach. Look what he says. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, loosed in heaven. The gospel has power to break chains. So go and preach and proclaim. Don't hold that stuff to yourself. Again, I say to you, oh, you've got power in prayer. Look, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And then he ends with this incredible hope. How many of you know this verse? Verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Is that a special verse to anybody but me? I'll I, I tell you why this verse is so special to me. I grew up in a little country church, and when I was uh, in my late teens, they, uh, they asked me uh, to be uh, the brotherhood director of this little country church. If you don't know what that is, it goes way back to uh, the days when uh, the, the Brotherhood Department oversaw the, the Baptist workings of men and youth and boys, and we had a program called RAs. We still have RAs here. And RAs is like Christian Boy Scouts. I said, well, that's a pretty impressive title, director. I said, what does that mean? It says, means you're teaching RAs every Wednesday night. I said, okay, I'm happy to do it. And I get there, and I said, where are my students? Here they are. I had two. I had two RAs. But I knew that where two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus was there, and after a year of laboring with that little group, I grew that group of two RAs to one RA. <laughs> Not a promising start to ministry. But thank goodness the promise was two or three, and even with my one or two little RAs, I wasn't alone, was I? Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus was in that midst. And that's a tender promise to a young teenager who's getting discouraged that he grew a RA ministry from two to one. It was a very tender promise, very encouraging. Can I tell you something? That is very tender. That is encouraging. I hope you take encouragement. But that's not the context in which Jesus says he's there. Remember the context. When you have to have a conversation with somebody and you're sitting there and, you, and, 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 and it's tough and this one's going to have a box of Kleenex uh, emotionally and there's going to be some tears, there's going to be some heartache and it's messy, isn't it? Human relationships are messy. Nobody in here is a category. People aren't categories. They're long stories. 
Every one of you, and me too, you are a long story. And, and there are about, what, 8 billion different ways we can hurt each other. How did I come up with 8 billion? Because that's the number of people on the planet right now. And as many people as there are, we're bouncing into each other. And we're gonna, so, so no, when you have to have that tough conversation and you're there, what an encouragement to know you are not for a moment alone. You're not alone. And sometimes when two Christians get together, Jesus says, before you get into this conversation, sometimes I'll even pray that way. If two people have come, and they didn't ask me to be a ref necessarily, they just needed a little pastoral help in navigating something, and two people, often that's how I'll open the meeting with a prayer. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge you are in this room with us. Why? Because I need us to know whatever happens here, we're not alone. We have his promise. Well, that is, I mean, Jesus lays this out. It's powerful. It's beautiful. Peter hears this beautiful statement and answers with, mm-hmm, but how many times? Poor Jesus is like, oh, come on, you don't get it. Peter came up to him, Lord, how often? Yeah, yeah, okay, so there's a progression there, yeah, yeah. But how many times I got to do that? Can you imagine you go to him? I mean, seriously, how many times has it happened that a Christian brother or sister sinned against you for some of you, you're like, honestly, I don't think once. I don't think I've ever gone through Matthew 18. Usually we just work it out and we're good to go. Well, good for you. But, but even if you had to do it once or twice, is anybody in here three times? I mean, the rabbis would have said three times. Rabbis were kind of like four strikes, you're out in Jesus' day, right? Um, to, to, use, to paraphrase Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, if someone strikes you on one cheek, you turn you off of the other cheek. And I guess the rabbis figured, yeah, but after two, I'm out of cheeks and we're throwing hands. Like, it, it, right? So Jesus said, okay, so, what, so, so, so they're talking, and they're like, well, throw out a number. Get him started. Sort of prime the pump here. And they're like, well, the rabbis say three, but this is Jesus. Jesus always seems to have another way to look at something. So I'd go, I'd go no fewer than four or five. And somebody's like, well, double it. Double whatever the teaching of the day, double it to six. And Peter's like, I'm going to double it, and then just to be safe, I'm going to add one. So he throws out what he thinks is an incredibly generous number. And before you laugh at this, you got to remember, like, he's just shared all this stuff in Matthew 15. How many times would you be willing to go through that with somebody? So when he throws out a number, he's like, what do you think? Jesus? how often? I'm thinking, like, as, as many, I mean, can you imagine? Do I have to do this? Say the guy does it, oh, three, four, five. Say he does it seven times. Would you honestly ask me to go through Matthew, 15, uh, Matthew 18, and, and I, I'm going to have to do this seven times? And all the disciples laugh, you know, like seven times. Can you imagine such a number? And Jesus said to him, no, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, verse 22. Uh, they're all like, uh, sorry. What? And Jesus said it. And Jesus followed it with, some of you have a footnote that says it could be 70 times 7. He didn't say it. <clears throat> but some of you do have a footnote that says 70 times 7. So now we're up to 490 times. What's his point? It's a figure of speech to say, Peter, uh, no, you're not even close. And what you think is the kind of forgiveness I want in your heart is a fraction of the forgiveness I want you to show people. And he's saying, the very fact that you asked this question, I'm just trying to blow up you keeping score altogether. Because you lose track. You could maybe remember when somebody hurt you seven times. You, you're going to lose track when you get to 56, 57, aren't you? And if you're 70 times seven, by 420, you just can't remember. You get it, right? So Jesus says, no, not, not seven, but 77 times. See, Peter, here, here's what I know. Uh, the very, the very way you frame that question lets me know that you've got a little mental spreadsheet you're walking around in your mind, and you're always keeping score. you got a scorecard on everybody. He's up two on me. I owe him. He owes me. She owes me big. But I did, I, to be fair, I did this. Okay, so that evens out. We're probably par. I'm two under here. <laughs> you're keeping a mental spreadsheet all the time. And Jesus says, here's what I want you to do with that mental spreadsheet. I want you to click on it and click move to trash. Then I want you to go into the recycle bin icon, and I want you to flush empty trash, and I want that gone. Why? Because in my kingdom, love keeps no record of wrongs. We don't even have a heart that keeps score anymore. Well, that's, that changes categories. <clears throat> do, you, do you know there's, so Bible trivia time, do you know there's only one other place in the Bible where there's not seven, but 77? Does anybody know? It's, it's only one other place in the Bible. Not seven, but 77. The only other place in the Bible is Genesis 4. And it's one of the very first, I think it's uh, uh, Adam's poetry when he, when he writes, when Eve is presented. Uh, uh, and then um, he writes the, one of the very first lines of Hebrew poetry. He writes a song. Here's what happened in Genesis 4. Well, in Genesis 3, do you remember Adam and Eve, the fall of man? Adam and Eve had two kids, right? Who were they? Cain and Abel, right? 
Cain kills Abel. So Genesis 4 kind of tracks the story of what happens after that dreadful murder. Cain goes on to live this life and um, uh, uh, he, he builds a city, basically. And there's this uh, tale of the genealogy of Cain and, and he begat so-and-so. And it gets down to the grandkids and the great-grandkids. And on this city, I think when Jesus references this, since it's the only other time, not seven, but 77, and since it was Hebrew poetry, and since it's right there in the Torah at the very beginning, I imagine, I, I, I can't prove it, but I think they would have gotten the reference here. Um, it's, uh, it's a guy named Lamech. And Lamech writes this song, and to be honest, he sounds like a lot of the songs you hear. Lamech is like the, the perennial tough guy. You mess with Lamech, hey, I'm a guy I don't forgive and I don't forget. Lamech is leaning into that carnal appetite. Hey, why not? He's part of the city of Cain. What else would you expect on a city that's foundation is built on murder and hate? And so Lamech's point is, you cross me, you'll rue the day. You you, you don't mess with me. You, you sow the wind, you'll reap the whirlwind, okay? So Lamech is, is flexing his tough guy muscles in this, and here's what he writes. He's this polygamist. He's got all these wives, and here's his poetry in Genesis 4, 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me. Lamech said, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. Listen to what I say. I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Now look at that. That's insane. What's he say? What happened to an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? If he wounded you, it should be replaced by a wound. He strike for strike. No, wound, killed. Strike, death. That's, what, that's, that's the Lamech way. And he punctuates it with this. If Cain's revenge is seven, then Lamech is not seven. 77. The world is the way the world is. Because we're a lot better at the Lamech way of thinking than the Jesus way, aren't we? You, you come after me, you won't get seven in return. You'll get 77. And when Jesus said that, he said, hey, Lamech is saying not seven times of vengeance. He's bragging that his protection is even greater than Cain's where God promised sevenfold retribution. Lamech is effectively saying, hey, you, you come at me seven, not seven. I'm gonna multiply 77. Jesus is saying in the same way that Lamech's vengeance, what he's saying is my vengeance knows no end. Jesus is saying in my kingdom, mercy will know no end. That's a lot to take in. I don't know how that landed on Peter. I don't know how that landed on the disciples. But I know what Jesus was saying. He's saying, I'm after your heart. I want you to have a heart like mine. And you're this legalistic understanding. And so I'm gonna have to tell you a story. When Jesus needed to teach a point clearly, what did he do? He'd tell a parable. And that's what he's about to do. I I couldn't go on, though, because forgiveness is so multilayered and so complex um, that I thought it would, here's where we pause and just say, and I won't touch on all this, but, but what forgiveness is not in Matthew 18? Already we can infer what forgiveness is not. I'm gonna put a big list up here. I'm gonna tell you, uh, Tim Mackey has uh, a Bible project. He's great. If you uh, get access to his stuff, it's, it's available everywhere. Uh, but he, he has a list. I adapted a list. I took like four of his and added like five of mine. But here's what I thought would happen. I'm not gonna be able to do a deep dive in this. It would not be inappropriate to take your phone out if you wanna take a picture of this because here's what forgiveness is not. And you may want to study some of these things later. And whether or not, you know, I'm not going to be able to prove or demonstrate all of these uh, scripturally for you. But uh, convictionally, I think it's just worth pointing out, and I'll just touch on it. Forgiveness does not mean ignoring, forgetting, condoning, or excusing. People who say, well, forgive and forget. I'm like, that, that, who does that? Like, to forgive means, yes, you release, you let go of that hatred. But to forgive doesn't mean forget. Otherwise, how do you do Matthew 18? Go to your brother. Hi, I'm here. Why? You've sinned against me. What was it? I just forgot. Like that makes no sense, right? You don't forget it. It doesn't mean you have spiritual amnesia. And it doesn't mean people say, well, you shouldn't forgive because that just enables, that condones or excuses. No, 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 no. Forgiveness does not mean, it's in fact the opposite of that. You're acknowledging the sin. So it doesn't condone or excuse. And a lot of people are shocked by this. Forgiveness is not actually the same thing as reconciliation or restoration. You may be shocked by that. Preacher, are you against reconciliation or restoration? 
Quite the opposite. I'm for it. The New Testament has a lot to say about it. Paul says we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Here's the problem. Reconciliation is a two-way street, and I can't control your side of the street. Forgiveness is a one-way street, and I'm responsible for that. I can forgive, but reconciliation, it takes two. So, what, so, so forgiveness is just a little different than reconciliation. It is often a prerequisite, but it's somewhat different. <coughs> Returning back to the things the way they were before or immediately, if ever, granting trust again. A lot of people say, well, I, I can't forgive because I can't trust him again. I'm like, well, those are two different things. Forgive him, release, cancel the debt, but it doesn't mean you have to trust this person again. Why? Forgiveness can be granted immediately. Trust may take years to rebuild. Forgiveness does not mean you always allow the offender to escape consequences. Now, yes, sometimes you could uh, reap and make them pay for consequences, but, uh, uh, but, and you can let it go. But at other times, that's exactly what you shouldn't do. The most obvious example of this are in cases of abuse, right? In a room this size, the stats are people are dealing with this. That's a terrible fact. Physical abuse, emotional Mental, uh, sexual abuse. So, so this person has perpetrated violence into the world. You can forgive them and they can still go to jail. Those two things can happen together, right? Because if you say, well, forgiveness means I can't press charges or I can't, I, I gotta let it all go. Uh, it, this takes a lot of wisdom and a lot of discernment, but, but it, at the very least, it seems to me, if a person is perpetrating violence into the world, to forgive them, doesn't that now free them to perpetrate more violence into the world? That, that doesn't solve anything. And so always, or in every case, I should say, allowing the offender to escape every kind of those consequences, that's not forgiveness. So don't tell yourself, well, I can't forgive because uh, th- you know, this person uh, needs to be held accountable in this way. Uh, th- those two things are not mutually exclusive. And then it's not easy, it's not inexpensive, there is a cost to forgiveness, and it's not deserved. This is my favorite one when people, and they may not frame it this way, but when they say something to me like, well, preacher, I'm sorry, I, 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 they don't deserve forgiveness. That's my spot. Where I say, if they'll allow me to, I'll say, hey now, say that sentence back to yourself. They don't deserve forgiveness, so they don't deserve grace. That's right. So, technically, that's the only kind of grace you can give. The only kind of forgiveness there is, is when they don't deserve it. If they deserve to be forgiven, they need not be forgiven. Because there's obviously no foul. They had an excuse for what they did. So just get over it. The only time you can forgive somebody, listen to me carefully, the only time you can forgive somebody is when they don't deserve forgiveness. That's literally the definition of grace. That's what it means. So if anybody here today is like, they don't deserve it. Good. Now we're in terms of forgiveness. Something's not deserved is the only forgiveness there is. Well, Jesus drives his point home and so must I here with a story. You know this story. It's a familiar story, so I won't belabor it, but it's a great story in answer to Peter's question. It's the perfect story, isn't it? Therefore, verse 23, therefore, You know this one? The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So here we have a king with various heads of state managing his affairs. When he began to settle, ah, the day of reckoning. Let's see what you've done with all of this, uh, 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 you know, the the Department of Treasury, Department of Defense. How'd you spend that budget? The Secretary of State. How did you spend all this money? One was brought to him, and Jesus here throws out a number that everybody's like, this is not even, this is like bedillion, zillion. He throws out, hey, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. Now, we don't, we, we, talents was currency. We think of talent as like um, a natural skill or something. No, 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 talent was money. One talent, y'all, one talent was the largest amount of money they could conceive of, right? I mean, it, after, like, there's not a billion dollar bill, right? So you, whatever the largest currency you can think of in their day, that would have been the talent. One talent was the equivalent of not a year's wages, not two years' wages, 20 years' wages. One talent. So let's call a year's wage, just for easy math, let's call a year's wage $40,000. So in modern-day terms, 20 years of wages, one talent. So one talent, $40,000 times 20, $800,000. That's one talent. If the guy had owed $800,000, he'd have been in uh, hot water. But he owes him 10,000 talents. 
So what is 10,000 times 800,000? For those of you who are told today's sermon would contain no math, I'll help you. 10,000 talents is 8 billion with a B dollars. So you got to wonder, what is this guy involved in? How does he even get access? There must have been some embezzlement. This is not like mismanagement. Oh, where'd I put $8 billion, right? My bad. Like, this is clearly illegal activity. He has stolen from him, and it's gone. Eight billion. You understand, the reason when Jesus tells this, and the people are like, $8 billion with a B, 10,000 talents, that's like zillion. There are entire nations in Jesus' day that don't have $8 billion, right? Even today, there are, I'm sure there are nations that their whole treasury wouldn't be $8 billion with a B dollars. And so verse 25, and since he could not pay, and everybody's like, no kidding, because no one could. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, um, this would have made total sense to them. At that point, as, as punishment, he's selling the, the, the man, the wife, the family, everything. Um, Jesus doesn't uh, uh, condone this, but in his story, the, uh, the man is sold into slavery. That, that, that's just what would have happened. Payment would be made. He would have gotten some nominal sum, but obviously it's not to repay $8 billion. It is punishment. It's, it's punitive. So the crowds, what he says next, the crowds would have roared with laughter, I think. When what this guy says next, I think the guy is so delusional, it's great. And if it, the, the crowds get it. So Jesus is telling the story, and he's like, $8 billion. So now he's going to be sold off into slavery. And the guy should have known that, that that's what's going to happen. Uh, by the way, he's lucky he got sold off into this uh, slavery. That alone, you might argue, was an act of mercy. Can you imagine if this king goes to Caesar and says, hey, I don't have your $8 billion. He's never coming out of Rome. You, you understand? They're going to kill him. So, so the fact that was a mercy, should have been killed, but... But he's delusional. Verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. You know the crowd just died laughing. Really, bro? Really? Yeah, I just need, I just need a little bit. I know I owe you $8 billion, but if you'll give me till next Friday, then I'll be able to, like, what? What are you, what? Are you, what? You're not good for it. You just, you, that's your excuse. You just need a little more time. Yeah, if we could maybe refinance this $8 billion at a low interest rate, and in uh, 58 million years, I'll be able to pay you back. <laughs> so the situation's hopeless. But verse 27 does not say because the master believed him, he could pay it back. No. It doesn't say because the master was convinced he was creditworthy. It doesn't say because the master demanded, uh, you know, he kind of refinanced the loan. No, 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 no. Verse 27, what on earth was this king thinking? I'll tell you what he was thinking. He was feeling pity. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Out of pity. And there it is. Forgiven. Released. You almost wonder if he laughed or shook his head when the guy was going on about how he just needed a little more time to get to the $8 billion. No, grace has pardoned this man of an unspeakable debt. And that's what forgiveness is. Remember I told you what forgiveness is not, what forgiveness is. And we close with an illustration. Forgiveness does not mean some things we talked about. Here's what forgiveness does mean in Matthew 18. And I get this from verse 27. Out of pity, he released him, forgave the debt. So I would say have pity. First thing, forgiveness starts from the heart. Do you have pity? Do you have compassion for this person? The Lord has put that compassion in your heart. You, it starts with the heart. You gotta have some pity. You gotta have that compassion. You gotta have that mercy. And then you cancel the debt. What does it mean to cancel the debt? It means that you don't make this person pay. They may still have consequences. They may have some things they have to work out with the law or whatever it is. But in terms of your relationship, you, you, you even feel like you have a right. You have a right to get them to pay you back emotionally or to pay you back in all these things. But you're going to cancel the debt. You're not going to make them pay. Let me ask something. What does that mean in real terms? For some of you, it means you surrender your right to make them pay. And how you do it is very aggressive. For some, it's even violence. And you're going to make them pay. And you're canceling that debt. Others of you, you don't do it aggressively. You do it passive aggressive. And what passive aggression making them pay is, at every turn, you're tearing them down. Every chance you get and they come up in conversation, another little passive aggressive teardown. Another little passive aggressive teardown. Why? Because they've got to pay. Forgiveness says they don't have to pay anymore. They don't have to pay. I'm not going to hold them to pay. Passive-aggressive ways of making them pay are canceled. And that's what it means to truly let them go. They're released. It's beautiful. It's good. It's not easy. So what does the guy do? 
I, I, I got to bring this to a close. I mean, what does that guy do? Jesus, uh, th- 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 that's a great story. Oh, I know, I know. If the story ended right there, I know. Jesus would probably, I know. Um, he went out and he spent the rest of his life praising the merciful king. He freed me from the debt. And he keeps telling his kids and his grandkids, this king is the reason we're not slaves because he canceled the debt. Don't you see? I should have been killed. I should have been enslaved. But all glory to this king. Oh, let me tell you about this king. Oh, grandpa, you're always talking about that king. I am. And I wrote another praise song about the king. You're like, don't we have enough praise songs about this king? No, because he's so good. He canceled the debt. I can't quit talking about this king. Everybody should meet this king. He should have spent the rest of his days praising this king and living his life to the glory and honor of the king. Instead of that, which would have been a heart of gratitude, that's not what he does at all, he goes into a heart of pride. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now that would have been about $13,000. It's not nothing. That's a lot of money. But it is, by the way, do you know what relative, do you know what scale? Let's talk scale. Do you know what 13,000 is compared to 8 billion? It's a drop in the bucket. 13,000 is exactly 0.0001625% of $8 billion. And what does he do? (laughs) He seizes him and began to choke him. What is going on? Like at any point, at any point, he could have turned and avoided disaster. At any point, oh, but that bitterness started to grow and that pride started to grow and he got angrier and angrier thinking about that 13 grand that he could, he could use that 13 grand as a down payment for his $8 billion debt. A point zero 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 one six two five percent down payment is laughable and ridiculous. But he is, pride makes you do laughable and ridiculous things when it comes to forgiveness. And so he chokes him and says, pay what you owe. Now see if this sounds familiar. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Does that sound familiar? It should. It's the exact same thing that he said to the king. And verse 30, oh, come on, at that point, like don't you see, at any point, the guy could have gotten off the revenge train. At any point, there were exits everywhere. And right then, something should have clicked. Have patience with me and I'll pay you. He should have been like, Whoa, self-aware moment. I just said that to a king who forgave me. Oh, wow, I'm being really dumb right now. He didn't do it. No self-awareness. Don't you see? Rage takes over and hate, it, it, it consumes a person to where they're not thinking straight. And in that moment, it should, oh, I wish verse 30, I wish it could say, out of pity he forgave him, or out of self-awareness, or out of fairness, or out of justice, or out of anything. Instead, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Debtor's prison. The idea is uh, your family comes and, pays the money to get you out of debtor's prison to cover your debt, and then he can take that 13 grand. What was he thinking? I'll tell you what he was thinking. He was delusional, and he was proud, and he didn't want to be the king's charity case, and all he could think about was going in and paying back that $8 billion. I'm going to pay him back. Why? Because then me and the king can be even. I don't want to be the king's charity case. Welfare in this country People who, who need assistance, sometimes they, they call that government assistance, sometimes they nickname that welfare. Over the years, that has, uh, uh, right, wrong, or indifferent, or, or whatever your politics on this, over, over the years, that has unfairly gotten a very negative connotation. And I think if you were to say somebody, you know, you're just a welfare case, uh, I think, uh, offense to those who are being assisted aside, I think they would not mean that as a, as a good thing. I don't think they would mean it as a compliment. They, they, they would basically be saying, you know, you, you can't stand on your own two feet, you see? Um, uh, I think this guy had a real problem being the king's welfare case, if I can use it in that, in that way. And I think I, he doesn't want the king's welfare. He doesn't want the king's charity. And so he's going to pay him back out of pride. And he's going to start with that guy that owes him the 13 grand. Do you see how pride blows up forgiveness? You just, they, they're just mutually incompatible. Can I ask you something point blank? This guy was not okay to be the king's welfare case. Are you? Have you, have you come to a point where you've humbled yourself and gotten so much, that humility breathes beautiful self-awareness into your life. You become appropriately sized in God's eyes and you realize, oh, the great debt I owe, how could I have ever been so foolish as to hold this other person's feet to the fire and Jesus does something that he almost never does. That pride kept this man. So Jesus does something he almost never does. He closes this whole thing 
by telling you the point of the parable. He almost never does that. A lot of times he'll tell a parable and be like, let those with ears hear. I speak in mysteries, figure it out. But here, he tells them the point, and it is the point for you today. Here it is. Verse, uh, oh, 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 I, I, no, 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 I, I, sorry, got ahead of myself. Verse 31, verse 31. You can imagine what, you can imagine what happened. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, here, are the, these are the two to three witnesses, I guess. They were greatly distressed. That's an understatement, because everybody here in the story is greatly distressed. They're thinking, why would you do this? That's so unjust. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Oh, boy. Then his master, and everybody reading this goes, good, good. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Some of your translations say torturers. The point is, he was delivered forever because you don't make a lot of money being tortured and jailed in that, right? I mean, it, the point is, he's never getting out. Pay all his debt. If he lived a million lifetimes, he couldn't pay back what he owed. Then Jesus does something he almost never does at the end of the parable. And everybody goes, yeah, that's right. So Jesus has got, he's got the whole crowd right where he wants him. He's got Peter right where he wants him. Peter, your question about the limits of forgiveness. Yeah. Scale, Peter, scale. What anybody has ever done to you pales in comparison to the cosmic treason that we have committed against God. It's all about scale. And everybody in here who heard this story goes, that ain't right. Even a child could hear this message and go, that ain't right. Guy got forgiven $8 billion and he goes shakes down a guy and chokes him for 13 grand? That ain't right. And when everybody says that ain't right, then Jesus ends with, then why should your heavenly father forgive you if you're not willing to forgive others? That ain't right. And who can argue with his logic? Quod erat demonstratum. There it is. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Everybody get it? God has been generous to us. We must be generous to others. The grace-filled are grace-full. C.S. Lewis said it this way. To be a Christian means you forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Brandon's going to come. I promise you that last little bit to know it's vital. It's vital like oxygen. Here's how I think forgiveness works. Because some people would read this and go, so God's not willing to grant forgiveness? Well, it's not so much his willingness to grant, but your ability to receive. Here's the illustration. I hope this helps. Everybody, if you can, if you're willing, I'd like you to take, if possible, on the count of three, I want us all to take a deep breath, and really deep, like as deep as you can take on the count of three, and then just hold it, just for a couple seconds. And here we go, okay, deep breath. One, two, three. Now, breathe in a huge deep breath, another deep breath. It's weird, right? I can't get any more in there. The only way I can fill up on another wonderfully enriching deep breath of oxygen that, by the way, my body needs is to breathe out. That's what that verse means. Jesus is saying, hey, I got new, I got new, I got new mercies for you every morning. Here's the deal. Unless you breathe out that forgiveness on others, guess what? There's no room for you to fill up on an enriching breath of forgiveness that he has for you. Fair? Sure seems fair to me. He's got forgiveness. He's got grace. It's ready. It's available for you. But if we're not willing to breathe that forgiveness out on others, it's not that God is unwilling to offer the forgiveness. It's that we do not have room enough to receive it. Those mercies are available. Well, I, uh, I know there's a lot of uh, complication around this topic of uh, forgiveness. But there's the whole thing is we're supposed to identify with that unmerciful servant. We're supposed to be like Peter, who Jesus was trying to get him to identify with the unmerciful servant. And really, we were, we're supposed to identify, hey, that's us. But there's another character in this story. And, and that unmerciful servant, you go, who does that? How could anybody do that? But there's another character where you're tempted to ask the same question. And I don't think they thought of this until after that road trip to Jerusalem. And it wasn't until a lot later, after the death, burial, and resurrection, that I think the light bulbs went off for the disciples and they started thinking about that king. Who forgives $8 billion? I told you, entire nations, entire treasuries don't have $8 billion. So the king, if this parable holds, the king probably had to sell off his kingdom to cover the debt. 
of a wicked servant. Now, what's that like? King's walking through the palace, last day in the palace, selling the crown, selling off everything. Can't pay the, the Department of Defense, can't defend the city, not going to be king anymore. All these riches are now sacrificed, and they're gone. Because $8 billion doesn't go away. It had to be paid for. And if the guy didn't pay it, what does it say? The king canceled the debt, which means the king paid. You say, that's not, that's not fair. That king didn't know that $8 billion. That wicked servant. And he was a, he was a low life anyway. He's out, he is out choking a guy while the king is selling off everything in the kingdom to pay. And ultimately, I assume, sold himself and his family. You say, that has gone from, I don't think this is a likely true story, to this is ridiculous. What kind of king would sell off everything they have, even including selling himself into slavery to cover a debt he didn't owe, while the guy who he's paying for is out choking somebody? Who does that? Who died? Who would give up everything for a wicked sinner who doesn't deserve it? So that parable is about Jesus too then, isn't it? He was the king who, though he had everything, paid a debt he did not owe. And the Bible says God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were out choking people for 13,000, while we were still sinners, Christ, oh, the love of Jesus, he died for us. And if you get that message and that gospel, it's the only thing that will, but it's, if that gospel melts your heart, you know what comes out of that heart? You will forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray. God, you know our hearts, and you know what a difficult, to say the least, conversation forgiveness is for folks. Lord, you know our emotions. You know how we're wired. You know that we have sinned against others, and we ourselves have been sinned against. Sometimes it's a mix and match and a combo. So God, we thank you for your forgiveness. I just pray every Christian in here would believe it, believe it so deeply. They would believe, like we said last week, that the king's kids really are free, and they would live in that freedom, and from that freedom, they would pour out that forgiveness, free and full, on others. Lord, if somebody has to have a tough conversation, give them grace, courage, and let them know you're there with them. Lord, if any of us have seen ourselves in this unmerciful servant, God, convict us. Do, let that parable do exactly what it was supposed to do, like a surgical, precise conviction in our heart to get out bitterness and hate. It has no place in the life of a child of God. Do it, Lord. For anybody here who's not yet a believer, Lord, they do not yet have access to the resource of, of, of knowing you, of being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let today be the day where they receive you as Lord and Savior. Let love replace hate. Let forgiveness replace bitterness. Let the canceling of debts replace the exacting of revenge. Let us be the exact opposite of a Lamech world. Not seven times merciful, but limitless. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.